Hi, and welcome to The Baroo, a modern lifestyle podcast for dogs and their people. I'm your host, Charlotte Bain. In today's chat, I get to talk pet food and nutrition with renowned veterinarian Dr. Judy Morgan. Her book, Yin and Yang Nutrition for Dogs, was recently ranked one of the top three dog nutrition books of all time. We get real about kibble, why it may not be optimal for your pet. We chat about some small improvements you can make to your dog's existing food that doesn't have to overwhelm you or your bank account, and we clear up some misinformation around what foods your dogs can and cannot eat. So let's get to the chat. Well, I'm super excited to meet you, and I'm super excited to chat with you because you're kind of like, for lack of a better term, the OG of um, a holistic approach to canine wellness. Um, I know you've been practicing veterinary medicine for like 38 years, something like that. I graduated 38 years ago. I retired from clinical practice two years ago, but I I still do consultate, you know, telehealth consultations and still writing and speaking and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. (laughs) And all that jazz. And all that jazz, my retirement. (laughs) Oh gosh, I know. Does anyone ever retire anymore? I don't think they do. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm keep... not sure we can ever afford to either. So. <laughs> no, it's like you have to just keep on trucking. Um, so today I really wanted to just talk about your specialty, which is nutrition. Um, or one of your many specialties, but I know that you're really passionate about animal wellness and canine nutrition. Um, but first I wanted you to tell me, tell us a little bit about your background because I know you've been, as you said, about 38 years and what inspired you to go move from Western veterinary medicine to more of an integrative approach focusing on nutrition? Uh, you know, life is a series of fortunate accidents. Right. <laughs> um, Things just kept falling in my path, and I could either sidestep, step over, you know, go around, back up, or just kind of move into what was thrown in my path, and that seems to be what I've done for the most part. Uh, But I went to a very traditional veterinary school in the Midwest. I was raised in a very traditional family. You know, my parents were a salesman and a school teacher. Um, So alternative or holistic lifestyle didn't even resonate with me. Right. And um, so I practiced traditional medicine from a very traditional standpoint for the first 10 years of practice. And um, then I accidentally took a chiropractic course. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, It was called veterinary orthopedic manipulation. And it talked about how we could help our uh, patients heal much more quickly from orthopedic surgeries and, you know, blah, blah. And my associate, my business partner at the time, uh, practiced a lot of um, uh, orthopedic stuff and right. did a lot of orthopedic surgery and I didn't do orthopedic surgery. So I thought, well, this will be great. It'll be my way of contributing. So we paid for it. And then off I went to, you know, my class and, uh, figured out within the first few hours, I think we're talking about chiropractic and I don't know <laughs> if I even believe in this. Um, but we paid for it. So I stuck it out and then I came home and as things are supposed to happen, the very first case in the door, um, needed that and I did that and the dog went from being carried into running out the door in like five minutes and I went huh (laughs) 
<laughs> so um, it was such an eye-opener. So I started doing it on literally everything that walked in the door because I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. I need to practice. Right. And um, the changes were just amazing. Absolutely amazing. So then I started looking into every holistic modality out there, trying to figure out what else I could put in my little toolbox. And um, the next thing I did that I really dove into was acupuncture. Okay. And the four branches of traditional Chinese veterinary medicine are acupuncture, herbal therapy, twina, which is sort of a combination chiropractic massage, and food therapy. And once I hit the food therapy part of it, I was hooked. And every holistic practitioner that you talk to will say there's just one thing that really hit their hot button. Um, right. Most of us are not a jack of all trades. I dabble in a lot of things, but most of us, <clears throat> like Dr. Melissa Shelton, she's the oily vet. She's the essential oil guru. Mm -hmm. um, so most of us find, so I, I did a summit this weekend and one of the people I interviewed, Ava Frick, she's the uh, hair mineral analysis guru. Everybody has their thing that right. they just, it's like, ah, this, this speaks to me. So over a period of years, um, I just kept adding more things to my toolbox, but the, the food really resonated with me because it's something that is so empowering. Uh, most pet owners, there are some who don't know how to cook at all, can't boil water, uh, barely know how to turn on the microwave, <laughs> and my office manager used to store shoes in her oven, so um, you know, wasn't being used for cooking. Um, but uh, there, there are ways around that, and um, it can be very empowering for people to actually take control of their pet's health and see an immediate improvement um, by doing something so simple as changing what's going into the food bowl. Um, and when you're given a devastating diagnosis for your pet, it's so really nice to have something in your own hands that you can do to right. prove their, their status, whatever it may be. Um, so for me, food is everything. It, it totally changes. And if we don't have a good foundation with food, we're not, not going to get anywhere. And right. I think, I think that's what, um, I think that, I'm answering a lot. This is a long winded answer, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I, I think that's one of the mistakes in traditional medicine is we're feeding the wrong things right. or we don't even look at what's being fed. Yes. And so we keep throwing more drugs at a problem or treating more symptoms and never uncovering the underlying problem, not giving a good foundation for the body to even work with. Right. So I, I think if, if, if we could convince more pet owners and more veterinarians that um, getting a good foundation is going to make a huge difference in the outcome or the progression. I, th I think we'd make a lot, lot of difference. <laughs> I feel like people wait until, and we, some of us do this with our own health. We wait until there's a sickness before we're like, Oh wait, we need to like maybe look at this and like, how can I, you know, hurry up and get better and, you know, eat better and exercise and do all this stuff where if we, start from the beginning and try to incorporate into our everyday lives, even just a little bit, then we might be able to prevent some diseases or some issues that crop up. I know that I have um, clients that don't think twice about what they feed their dog. And sometimes they even will roll their eyes when you mention something other than just kibble or whatever, the easiest 
thing it is for them to grab. And then I have others that are like super overwhelmed and confused because they really want the best for their pet. But they, again, they don't quite know how to how to go about doing it. And it all seems like too much or they're on a budget or they've got families with, you know, kids and all sorts of things that they're thinking about. So um, what are some some foundational tools, I guess, that they can... So the, the, the biggest myth in yeah. pet food is, uh, is being perpetuated by the big pet food companies and also right. by veterinarians. Yeah. We would never, if, if, if your pediatrician or even your own doctor said, look, here's this box of dry cereal. It's got mm-hmm. all the added vitamins and minerals you or your child will ever need. Just dump it into the bowl, crunch it down uh, twice a day. Don't ever change it up. Keep you healthy. You don't need to do anything else. We would look at them and go, what are you kidding? First right. of all, I'd be so bored. Second of all, I'd be like, that, that's a horrible way to eat. And we would never do that. So we've got this huge myth in the animal world that that's the best way to feed our pets. Well, what people don't realize is that the ingredients that go into the majority mm-hmm. of those dry things that we pour out of a bag are the waste products of the human food industry. They are considered inedible. Right. So I don't want to feed myself things that are inedible. You know that moldy stuff in the back of the refrigerator that we throw away? Right. That's where the moldy stuff from the grocery store goes. It's fed to animals. Mm-hmm. It's fed to the animals that we eat. But um, moldy meats, moldy grains go into Dry pet because dry pet food, the majority of it, is made with a process called extrusion. It's done at a very, very, very high heat. Mm-hmm. So most of the nutrition is cooked out of the food. Right. And it wasn't high nutrient food to begin with because it was the kind of the bottom of the barrel of the food chain right. um, of what is put in there. And so then we spray it with fats that go rancid. But that's to make it more appealing because what animal doesn't like a good piece of bacon? So basically we're spraying (laughs) it with that. And then we also add back in synthetic vitamins and minerals to make up for all the nutrition that is lost during the processing. So the the animal's body looks at all of this and says, oh, there's mold toxins, aflatoxins in the grains. Well, they get accumulated in the liver and cause elevated liver enzymes. How many times do people take their animal to the vet? They get blood work on them. Oh, look at that. That liver enzymes are high. Well, look at what you're feeding because there's a chance that's contributing to that. So what we really need to do is we need to look at what we're feeding our pets and say, okay, I need human grade food. I need edible food. I don't need inedible food being put into my pet's bowl. Now, if you don't have any time to cook, you don't know how to cook, you don't want to cook, you're barely keeping your head above water going to your job and taking care of your kids, and you're lucky if your dog gets 10 minutes of your time, you know what? There are a lot of new pet food companies that have come on the board on board in the last hmm, five to 10 years that are human-grade ingredients I call them TV dinners for dogs. Some of them, they come in these nice little trays. They can get a little pricey, but nice little trays, all human-grade ingredients. You can actually see the foods in there. It's like, oh, look, that's a carrot. Oh, look, that's a piece of meat. Oh, you know, you don't have to guess what's in that dry orb of dust. Um, So you can actually see what's in there, and you just warm it up. So, 
you know, there's something for everyone out there. Are you going to pay more if you're buying it already prepared by someone else? Sure, it's the same as, as ordering your food already prepared by someone else. Um, so even if you're on a budget, you can make your own pet food or you can add some really good, what I call superfoods to the bowl to up the nutrition that your pet is getting so that they're not just eating dry orbs of dust. What we're talking about is like thriving, I guess, versus surviving, right? Because I do have pets that are on some of that. Well, and- <laughs> so we, we have to look at genetics as well. Okay. Um, because there are some dogs that will live to be 18 or, and cats that will live to be 18, 19 years old, eating absolutely the worst bottom of the barrel food on the shelf. Yes. Animals can be kept alive eating shoe leather with a vitamin supplement. I mean, it does, it doesn't take much to keep them alive. And some of them just do well. And maybe they're foraging. I don't know. Maybe they're getting things that who knows? Um, you know, I've had dogs that or patients that have come in and I ask the owners what they feel. Oh, he won't eat dog food. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Do you cook for him? Nope. He won't eat people food. Okay. What does he eat? Snacks. And the snacks are the snacks that they buy in the grocery store. Well, read the ingredients on the snacks, like the bottom of the barrel snacks in the grocery store, the ones that are basically pressed wheat with dye that made yeah. them look like something good. Uh, they all have a vitamin mineral additive. Ah. So they're getting vitamins and minerals. Right. Even though they're really getting horrible, horrible nutrition, they're still getting vitamins and minerals. Okay. So animals can live on kind of the worst of the worst, but they don't thrive. So if you have a performance animal or if you want your dog not to get or cat to not get cancer or have a less chance of getting cancer, uh, less chance of having obesity, less chance of having endocrine disorders like Cushing's disease, diabetes, hypothyroidism, parathyroid disease, kidney disease, whatever. Um, if you want them to have less chance of developing all those things, then you're going to be looking to feed something that's human grade quality nutrition. Right. Traditional veterinarians, well, all of us, as we go through veterinary school, and even when we go to conferences, they are all sponsored by the large pet food companies. And the biggest owner of veterinary clinics, veterinary labs, veterinary radiology equipment in the U.S. is a candy company. So where do the waste products from their food company go? Right. Guess what? They go to the pet food company. So pet food's big business. Pet food, pet treats, it's mm-hmm. big business. Veterinary medicine is big business. And it's sort of like the, the human food industry as well with fast food and, and horrible things added to the food. If we keep the population sick, we always have a steady stream of patients coming in. The that's um, but that's not a veterinarian's goal. But veterinarians believe, and rightly so, they believe what they are taught by the big sponsors of what they're learning. Uh, For instance, when I was in veterinary school, so we're going to go back 38 years, this is a long time ago, um, in our medicine class, so we're internal medicine, we're learning about, you know, all the different diseases that animals get. And when they talk about diet to heal that problem, they don't say, okay, well, you know, this is why I write cookbooks for dogs. They don't say, okay, we need some dandelion greens to drain the liver. We need some asparagus. We need, you know, 
uh, gizzards or we need tripe or whatever. They'd say, you need this prescription diet that goes by these letters. Right. And that's what we were taught. And there, there wasn't, we weren't given, and they still are not given a nutrition class to learn how to formulate a diet. They wouldn't know how to balance a diet if, if you backed them into a corner. And that's part of their problem. They feel backed into a corner because they don't know how to tell you to do that. And they don't want to admit that they don't know how to do that. And they go, well, this thing here that's a prescription food is perfectly fine. It has all this research behind it. Right. There's actually a big lawsuit going on with that right now because the prescription diets don't have any ingredients in them that are different from their non-prescription diets. They cost a lot more. Uh. And a prescription is something that is written for a drug. It's written Mm -hmm. by a doctor to prescribe a drug. There's not a drug in those boxes and bags and cans of food. There's no drugs. So writing a prescription for a food that doesn't have drugs Bit of an oxymoron. So, but it's been going on for so many years and nobody's ever questioned it. And so you're a young veterinarian and just graduated from school. You have no idea how to formulate a diet and you go, oh, but look, I have this. It's got these initials on it. And don't treat what I just diagnosed. Here you go. Right. And then you have to come in every month to refill it. <laughs> it's an easy solution. Yeah. It's an easy solution. And, you know, the thing is, if you read my first book, The From Needles to Natural, there's a chapter in there called Pet Food Salesman. It was my second job out of school. We sold more prescription diet than probably any other veterinary clinic in the country. And pretty much every single patient, dog and cat, that came into our clinic went home with a prescription bag of something because we had a pediatric diet for the puppies and kittens and we had a geriatric diet for the seniors. And then we had liver diets, heart diets, kidney diets, allergy diets, skin diets, you name it. So it was such a huge income source for the mm-hmm. clinic. And my boss at the time was 100% on board, totally believed that this was the best way to feed our animals. And so what did I know? I'd been out of school for a year. Okay, sure. You know, that's what I was taught in school as well. My boss got trips all over the world. He got taken out to dinners. Uh-huh. I mean, the perks that went along with it, they don't do that so much anymore because they don't make as much, well, they still make a lot of money, but they don't, they don't do the perks anymore. Uh, <laughs> but at least, at least not those kind of perks. Uh, but it, it, it was crazy. And now, once I learned what I now know, I kind of wanted to go back and apologize to all those animals. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. Have you seen a difference? Have you seen like a change in your industry um, within like the last, I would say like 10 years? Like, has it gotten any better? Because I, you know, as we become more aware just as humans of how what we eat, you know, affects every aspect and how our gut affects every aspect of our health. Has, has there been any like new research in your industry or have you come across more veterinarians that are more on board that aren't necessarily just obviously holistic uh, veterinarians, but the holistic veterinary group is grow has grown. Okay. So that has helped. Um, but there are even holistic veterinarians who still use prescription diets and, and still, you know, they're on board with the whole have to feed grains for DC and yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a house call veterinarian who's actually from overseas, I think from the Czech Republic. Okay. And she said in Europe, at least where she went to school, um, they had to learn how to formulate diets for every species. 
So she actually worked for uh, different farm institutions for a long time, formulating diets for chickens and cows mm -hmm. and horses and, and dogs. And so when she met me and we started talking about food, she was like, of course you're feeding your dog homemade food. Why wouldn't you feed your dog homemade food? Of course you're feeding raw food. Why would you feed, you know, all this other stuff? And I went, wow, that's so refreshing. I said, we're not taught how to do that here. And she said, oh no, that's a requirement over there. Everybody has to know how to formulate diets. When did the um, the kibble, when did we start switching to like processed foods? I guess is my question for our animals. Uh, I know way back in the day, our animals weren't fed. Yeah, so it's, it started out with Mr. Spratt, um, who made the first biscuits uh, wow. for dogs. And then that, you know, that's, and that was back in the late 1800s. Oh. Um, but then from that, we went to uh, canned meats, mostly horse meats for, and they weren't balanced. I mean, there was no research. It was just right. the can. Um, but that was to make it easy for, you know, women who had a lot going on, but really our, our animals ate leftovers from the farm and that sort of thing. But then as we moved more towards cities and, you know, more, uh, you know, less rural living, uh, the canned food industry came along. And then uh, World War II, when there was a metal shortage, then the biscuit idea came back up. And that's really when the, the dry kibble started in earnest, like the 40s, uh, 50s. Okay. Um, and then it just got promoted as how easy is this? Like, dump it in the in the bowl and be done. And you're, you're such a good mom. You're feeding him the best. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's been really just really good advertising and good marketing. So for you, like, what do you recommend as the optimal, if someone wanted the optimal food for their pet, like they, is it, is it a raw diet or, and what does that look like, I guess, for? My dogs eat mostly raw, sometimes gently cooked. Um, and sometimes I make my own and sometimes I use commercial from companies that I know are good, um, because it's all really about the sourcing and how right. it's, made. uh, but every pet is an individual. So I can't across the board say that all dogs should eat raw dog food. That's a fallacy. Some dogs don't do well on raw dog food. They don't digest it well. Their, um, their digestive system is not healthy enough to handle it. Uh, they don't have enough good enzymes or they don't have a good microbiome, which is the bacteria in the gut. So um, a lot of them, we have to start off with something a little bit different. But so a lot of them are gently cooked is going to be so much better. So either that means cooking at a low temperature, like in a um, slow cooker, right? cooking at a low temperature, uh, which retains all the moisture, which is something that our animals need. And that's one of the problems with dry kibbles. It doesn't have enough moisture. And so our animals are running around in a state of dehydration their entire life, um, which causes kidney problems, urinary tract problems, skin problems, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it could be different for every animal. Right. Um, so there, there really is no one size fits all. And I might, I have a lot of recipes on my website and in my books. And, um, you know, one of those recipes might be perfect for nine dogs out of 10. And then the 10th one's like, that didn't agree with me. Um, so sometimes it's a little bit of a trial and error to figure out, but certainly anything that is made with real food ingredients, whole food, human grade food, 
Um, and then we have to get the diet balanced. So one of the things that I have to be very careful is that if I'm promoting, hey, make your own food, um, I have to couch that with and make sure that you're either adding supplements or using a base mix. Um, you know, it's, so there's a lot of base mixes out there now where it has all the vitamins and minerals and, you know, dehydrated veggies and whatever. And all you got to do is add your own meat and oil. Well, that's pretty simple. Yeah. So a lot of different levels of how to do that. We actually have a course called Homemade Dog Food 101. Okay. It talks about all that. It's on uh, our website, Dr. Judy U. Um, but, uh, there's so many shortcuts. And so for people who are really freaked out about, oh, what if I screw it up? I, I might get it's it wrong. me. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? You should be that way a little bit. Um, like you want to, you want to get as close as you can to what they need. Um, but you know, what I say is if let's say you're feeding a dry kibble. And you go, oh my gosh, now that I know that there's euthanasia solution in there, it's got moldy grains and it's got green chicken, uh, I got to get away from that. Um, and you're like, where do I start? So you might want to start with, okay, we don't want to, although I will admit any, uh, we do a lot of rescue work, any mm-hmm. rescue dog that comes to my house, I don't own kibble. And usually the kibble that comes with them is so horrible, I wouldn't feed it anyway. So in my house, I instantly flip them over to raw. And it's always worked out really well for me. Now, some dogs, they don't like the texture because they don't recognize it. It's not dry kibble. Uh, So some of them, we have to cook their food first um, or start out with some meatballs, kind of, you know, get it in their mouth and get them used to it. Um, But I've always just done a quick change. If you're afraid to do that, um, right. I, don't, I don't blame you. That's that's another one of those things that we're told all the time. Oh my gosh, don't do a quick change. It has to be gradual. Well, no, I I just do it differently at my house. Um, why start, why why are we not supposed to do? A, I do remember, um, you know, because they might get diarrhea. Got it. Fine, and I know that freaks people out. So you can do a gradual change. It's okay. And by the way, you can put raw and kibble in the bowl together, even though. And actually, in my first book, I think I said in there not to do that because that was the belief back then. That was. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, we now know that that's really not that big a deal. So um, start with something simple: hard boil an egg and crumble it over as food. Right. Um, open a can of sardines in water. Add them on top of the food. Throw some blueberries on the food. Put a spoonful of organic pumpkin on the food. Mm-hmm. Um, dark leafy greens. Mm-hmm. So uh, saute a little spinach, broccoli, asparagus, whatever that you're having, and chop it up and mix it in the food. Um, they, they love that stuff, and it's so healthy for them. Uh, mushrooms. Mushrooms are a huge superfood. So mushrooms that are safe for us to eat are safe for them to eat. Uh, shiitakes are my favorite to add in food. Okay. Uh, mushrooms release all their their medicinal goodness if they mm-hmm. are cooked. So um, I like to saute them in a little bit of coconut oil or olive oil and then chop them up and throw them in the bowl. The dogs love them. Cats mm-hmm. really like them too. Um, so we can start off with just add a few superfoods to the bowl. You know, try, try sardines today. Try um, an egg tomorrow. And frankly, the eggs could be raw or you right. if you're a little skeeved out by it. Um, and see what happens. First of all, your dog who kind of ignores his bowl and takes all day to eat his little dry orbs of dust may say, ooh, I think I like this now. Um, and then you gradually just kind of keep working your way across. Now, if you want to switch to uh, one of the pre-made gently cooked foods, and there's um, actually, if, if 
people are interested, they can sign up for our newsletter and you will get an email reply that gives you the list of foods that I'm willing to feed my pets commercial uh, brands. Um, and that's on drjudymorgan.com. Um, I'll put it all in the show notes. Yeah. So you could, you know, you could buy something like that, a gently cooked food. You could mix it over a few days, getting, you know, a little more kibble out of the bowl, a little more good stuff in the bowl. You can be like me, you can do a quick change. If you're going to do a quick change, you probably should put them on a probiotic just to have their, I mean, start the probiotic a couple days ahead of time to kind of get the gut like, okay, we're doing something here. We're making a change. It takes about four days um, of a diet change for the microbiome to shift to the new diet. So that's why, you know, when you do that, that if you do that slow change with 25% right. new, then 50% new, then 75%, and you're doing that over about four days, that's how long it's taking the microbiome to say, hey, you got somebody new. Um, <laughs> so in my case, I just do the switch, and then four days later, it's like, okay, you're good to go. Uh, frankly, I don't think I've ever had a dog blow with diarrhea. Right. I, I just, I don't, when I do the diet change, I don't think I've ever had them blow. Um, so I, maybe that's why I'm so brazen about it because it's never been a problem. I, and even for, uh, my patients, um, a lot of times the, the clients are like, well, I'm just going to give it a go. I'm going to give it a try. Um, and rarely do they have a problem. Um, the ones where we have the biggest problem is where their microbiome is already, you know, the dogs that have had chronic IBD, chronic vomiting and diarrhea. It's like, well, he already had vomiting and diarrhea, so we didn't make it worse. Right. And, um, what I would say to people who are dealing with animals with IBD, where they've got just explosive or pudding or, uh, yellow or mucusy or bloody stools, whatever you're feeding right now isn't working. You should not feed it one more day. Why would you do a slow change? It's giving him diarrhea. It needs right. to go away. Right. So we got to change. So, you know, if you have, if you're feeding something that's not working, why would you give it one more meal? Right. Oh, so much information. I want to, <laughs> <laughs> taking it all in, I want to circle back really quickly to, you were talking about all the foods you can add to your pet's diet so much mis- misinformation about what you can and can what you cannot give your dog like avocado and you know obviously could you just briefly chat about some of the like the top things that you can't and some of the things that are um that have misinformation around them yeah garlic has a lot of misinformation around it i would not feed it to kitty cats but for dogs it is absolutely fine it's actually a superfood it prevents okay. cancer and uh it keeps parasites away it's actually good stuff you don't want to overdo it but garlic is absolutely fine um I don't feed onions to my dogs, but if they get something with a little onion in it, I'm just not worried about it. I would be careful with garlic and onions if you have a dog with a history of hemolytic anemia. Okay. Other than that, no biggie. Uh, mushrooms. Again, I see it on so many do not feed lists. I'm like, put mushrooms in the bowl. The white mushrooms don't do a whole lot, like the regular button mushrooms. They don't, they're not that medicinal, but they're not bad for them, and they're a great fiber source. They're good for the bowel. It's good food for the, the gut microbiome, so mm-hmm. they're fine. Um, grapes and raisins should not be fed because they can put your, uh, dog into kidney failure. What else? Avocado is actually fine. It's the avocado pit and the avocado skin Mm -hmm. that we should not feed them. That's a problem. It's cause obstructions and the skin is higher in some chemicals that may not agree with them so well. Um, avocados are toxic for birds. If you have pet birds, do not, or chickens, do not feed them your avocado scraps. Um, 
what else? Uh, anything with xylitol in it, so be very oh, right. I'm not, I am I am not a fan of peanut butter at all. Interesting. I don't think I don't think our dogs should, and everybody uses it to hide their pills. Mm-hmm. Peanuts are not a nut; they're a legume, so they're related to peas and lentils. They grow on a shrub. They don't grow like a nut in a tree, like an almond. They are highly contaminated with mold toxins. Yeah. Remember, we were talking about grain mold toxins. Well, mm-hmm. the peanuts get the mold toxins. So it's very likely that the peanut butter that you're feeding, there's some mold toxins in there. Um, and our animals, particularly if you're giving them their pills and peanut butter every single day, right. we don't tend to eat peanut butter every single day. And this is part of the problem with our animals. When you put the same thing in the bowl day in and day out, if there's toxins in there, you're building them up and building them up and building them up and building them up until your dog explodes and says, well, my liver can't take it anymore, um, which is why I recommend rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't recommend peanut butter at all. I mean, we just have the huge salmonella recall with peanut butter. Um, it's not something that is good for our dogs in any way. If you want to use a nut butter, use almond butter. That's a true nut butter and make okay. sure you're using one that is just ground almonds, no sugars added, no cane syrup, no xylitol. You can find almond butter that is just ground almonds, um, and that works really well. And they like it, and it's actually got some really good medicinal properties. It's a phlegm drainer, mm-hmm. so uh, if they're congested. So you can take this in for yourself as well. Food therapy works for people, too. Right. So <laughs> if you're congested and you have a cold, almonds. <laughs> almonds. Oh, I, didn't, I had no idea. This is shocking news to me. <laughs> Um, we were talking about, I briefly want to talk about, um, if you want to, um, you mentioned legumes and I know there's some conflict with, uh, the cardio, I'm going to say this wrong, cardiomyopathy incident, um, with dogs and grain-free diets, the, from what I've learned, um, they don't know if it's the grain-free diet or if that most of these grain-free diets are substituted with some sort of a legume, like a, like a lentil or um, like a chickpea, right? Yeah. Is there so, any new information? Can you clarify well, that? Well, there, there's a ton of information and there's ongoing research, with there, which there should be. But uh, the, the, it was something like 568 cases of DCM, dilated cardiomyopathy, that were documented. Um, not all of them were eating grain-free food. Mm-hmm. And we would also have to look at what's the percentage of dogs in a particular breed group or at a, at a socioeconomic level, <laughs> you know, the ones that are paying for echocardiograms. Right. Um, can we, I'm sorry, can we briefly explain to the listeners what cardiomyopathy is? Because I won't. Oh, <laughs> sure. So dilated cardiomyopathy, first of all, it is seen in certain breeds. And they okay. also didn't, they didn't exclude the breeds who are genetically prone to it. So that's of the 568 dogs. There's a huge bunch of them that are genetically prone to this disease. So Irish wolfhounds, um, great Danes, Cocker Spaniels. It's mostly a large breed dog issue, boxers, Dobermans. So those breeds, they have a huge incidence of it. Um, so they needed to exclude those, but dilated cardiomyopathy is where the heart muscle gets very weak and very thin. So if we take an x-ray of these dogs, instead of seeing the nice little Valentine heart, we mm-hmm. see what looks like a basketball. The heart mm-hmm. is literally like blowing out because the, the heart muscle is getting thinner and thinner and thinner and ballooning out. And then because it's so stretched and thin, it doesn't 
contract well. So instead of getting with each contraction, you're getting eep, eep, right. Eep. Oh. And so the blood is not flowing to the body. And so they get very weak. Uh, a good friend of mine who actually is an owner of a pet food company, his great Dane, very active, hiking, everything, almost drowned one day. Dog swam almost every day, and the dog was going down, and he had to jump in the water, swim out, and haul the dog in. Didn't really think anything of it, and about a month later, he's like, you know, this dog is acting kind of funny. Took the dog in, didn't even have a heart murmur, but when they x-rayed him, he had a huge beach ball of a heart and mm. a cardiomyopathy. Never even had a murmur. So, you know, no symptoms other than he tried to drown one day, and everybody kind of wrote it off as a one-off. Um, but it was genetic. It was a, Great game, genetic problem with the dog. He was eating a diet that was absolutely fine. So uh, when they did the study or the paper, whatever it was, mm -hmm. and convinced FDA to scare everybody to death, um, literally animals that were eating really high quality, human-grade meat-based diets, raw food, gently cooked food, really high level, people were so scared because the veterinarians were saying, you have to have grains in the diet. And so they literally were going into their pet stores, their veterinarians, and saying, yeah, I need a food with grains in it, which is crap. They, they have no need for grains. Mm -hmm. They do have a need for certain amino acids, and one of them is taurine. But it's not considered an essential amino acid. It is for kitty cats, but uh, dogs can actually make it from two other amino acids, methionine and cysteine, which are found in grains. So... Uh, if there's not enough meat in the diet to supply the taurine and the carnitine uh, to make the heart function well, those are the two amino acids that are found in highest level in the heart muscle. So if there's not enough of that in the diet, then we could use grains. And this is why the low quality diets that are filled with corn work and the animals survive because they're taking that and their body is metabolizing it to make what they need. Right. And we've known since the 1980s that cats need taurine actually added to the food, particularly if you're going to put them on a grain-based diet, which they never should be fed. Um, but we've known that cats needed it because they're obligate carnivores. So the pet food companies have been adding extra taurine into the food to keep cats from developing cardiomyopathy, retinal degeneration, retinal detachment, and dying. So we've known that about cats, and we've never added it to dog food. Even though, and this is one of the things, our dogs really are made to be meat eaters. If we look at their dentition, their GI tract, their anatomy, they're supposed to be meat sources. Can they survive on grains and veggies? They can, but they're made to be meat sources. So um, what, with dry kibble, in order for it to go through that extrusion process, the maximum amount of meat that they can have in there is about 28%. Okay. Otherwise, it doesn't stick into a kibble. It makes a gooey, gunky mess and gunks up the machines. So when you buy a bag of dry dog food and you say, well, look, the first three ingredients are meat. It's great. Yeah, it's maximum 28% meat. That's that's it. Maybe if we stretch it, we can get to 30. Um, now, that's different from like air-dried foods or dehydrated foods that are, you know, are meat-based. Right. So what happened over the years is... No, we didn't have all that much meat in there, but we had grains in there. So the dogs were able to utilize that to make what they needed to keep their heart functioning, um, except for the breeds that are genetically prone to it. And they're going to do it no matter what you feel. Um, so uh, 
somewhere along the way, we decided to start using a lot of peas and lentils mm-hmm. um, and potatoes instead as our binder. And all those things are that those starches are in there as a binder to bind right. them together so that it goes through the extruder. Um, so what happened is they can't make taurine from peas and potatoes. Mm. Taurine is essential for the heart to function. So if we have low taurine, then we will get dilated cardiomyopathy. So one of the treatments for it is to add a taurine supplement and put them on a meat-based diet. Um, the interesting thing is when they actually started testing all these dogs for taurine, some of them were not low in taurine. I did so it's that. not just a taurine problem either. Uh, there was an inordinate number of golden retrievers hmm. that showed up with the problem that have not had problems before. So now we have to look at the genetics of golden retrievers and say, okay, even like some of them, they're testing the taurine levels are fine, yet they have dilated cardiomyopathy. It's like, why are they not utilizing it? Why are they not absorbing it? What, what is going on in their body? So I think that we have a couple of different things kind of culminating at the same time. Right. Um, I did a really interesting interview with Dr. Ava Frick, who is a um, uh, hair mineral analysis expert, mm-hmm. um, veterinarian. And she said, well, I have, I have the reason behind this whole DCM debacle, and it has to do with mineral deficiencies uh, because the minerals are really important in the utilization and metabolism of the taurine. So she actually has another layer to, to add on to what we've been looking at. So we don't have all the answers or there needs to be a lot of study, but really um, somebody drew attention to right. dilated cardiomyopathy. It's always been there. Um, and if we look at the fact that there are something like 110 million dogs in this country and 568 had dilated cardiomyopathy, Hmm. what is that? 0.00005%, some ridiculously small number. And again, we didn't take out the breeds who genetically are prone to that. So maybe that number is, is half of that. There was a mountain made out of a molehill. And I'm not saying that the problem doesn't exist because we right. did see some breeds that suddenly were having issues. But the thing is, peas, lentils, and potatoes as the majority of their diet is not species appropriate. It does mm-hmm. not give them the amino acids that they need to thrive. So... Is it part of the problem? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we fix it? Sure. Add meat. Right. <laughs> meat, eggs, fish, you know, add, add what they need, but it doesn't have to be grain. Right. Um, you know, and grain allergies are not as big a deal. Uh, you know, it's not as huge a thing as we think it is, but that's just not what our dogs are supposed to eat. Right. You don't see dogs grazing in the wheat field. It's just not what they do. Let's talk about your book. Yeah, three of, three of them are cookbooks. Well, one of them I don't want to talk about very much, but three of them are cookbooks for dogs. I haven't okay. done cookbooks for cats. People keep asking for them. I'm like, you can cook it. Your cat won't eat it. <laughs> and if they eat it once, they won't eat it. They don't like leftovers, so mm-hmm. they're in small batches. Uh, but I do have a few recipes for cats on the website. So my first book, uh, this one over here, is From Needles to Natural Learning Holistic okay. Medicine. And it's, it's autobiographical, talking about, you know, the how I got into this accidentally with the chiropractic and things that I learned along the way, but it also has chapters 
Um, and it compares traditional medicine to, um, I don't want to say alternative, complementary medicine, we'll call that. Um, so uh, a lot of information about food, but there's chapters on eye disease, liver disease, kidney disease, heart disease, cancer, um, and you know how they're diagnosed, what they are, endocrine disease. Um, you know, there's end of life stuff in there. There's even a chapter on horses and a couple chapters specifically for kitty cats. Um, so it's, it's kind of a fun read. One so of the next book I wrote, uh, I co-authored with um, Tani Wilhelm. She's a dog trainer in Ohio. And um, it's What's for Dinner, Dexter. Um, and uh, I kind of wrote the TCBM part in the beginning. And then most of the recipes, I have a few recipes in there. Most of them were hers and they were what she was feeding her cavalier um, with his issues that he had. And it was his recipes basically for the whole year. Um, I, I don't promote that one now because it has more starchy things in it than mm. like I've changed how I how I feed. Right. Um, you know, we learn more. And we, yeah, we, just, we evolve. Um, yeah. So I don't push that one as much, although there's really nothing wrong with the recipes in there. And then the next one we wrote, I don't have up here, it's uh, Canine Kitchen Capers. And that <laughs> one is just a funny book. It has a ton of recipes in it. It has human as well as um, canine recipes. Mm -hmm. But they were really stories that people sent to me about their calamities in the kitchen when they started making pet food for their mm -hmm. dogs. Um, and then we came out with yin and yang nutrition for dogs, maximizing health with whole foods, not drugs, because I am so, I'm so enamored with what food can do that I thought, you know what, this should not be hidden from other people. And what would happen is people would come in for a consultation. I'd go through the whole thing and figure out what their animal needed. And then I'd have to sit there and write out recipes for them. Mm. So I wrote the book really to save myself some work. Um, and, and it's uh, written from a Chinese medicine perspective. So if you want more information about um, the yin and yang of food, how you know how you drain phlegm, how do you get more energy, how do you resolve stagnation, which is tumors, lumps, and bumps, mm. um, that's all explained in there. And it gives you lists of foods that do those things. But you don't have to use that part of the information. A lot of people go, okay, my dog's got liver disease. I'm going to liver. <laughs> you know? right. um, one thing I will say, again, make sure that you're balancing the diets, not all the diets. And this is explained and they're not each diet is individually balanced, but there is a chapter that tells you how to balance. Right. And you also have work, some workshops, um, right, on your website. Yeah, so you can get to them through drjudymorgan.com or you can go directly to Dr. Judy U, which stands for Dr. Judy University. Uh, but we have one called Dog Longevity, um, which basically gives you all the ways to help your dog live longer. We have Cat Longevity now. We have the Homemade Dog Food 101. We have uh, one on um, interpreting lab results. Like, what do all those initials mean on that mm -hmm. piece of paper that you get? Um, and for that one, we have a simplified and then we have a more involved one. If you're like want to geek out and really understand what you're <laughs> looking at. Um, and then we have some courses that were actually written by other holistic veterinarians. There's one on, um, feeding raw meaty bones. Uh, mm -hmm. there's another one on making raw food. So 
And we are collaborating with a lot of other holistic veterinarians to get more and more coursework. I know we have one who's going to be working on acupressure. Um, we have another one that's going to be working on cancer. So, um, you know, keep checking back there because as we build the library, there'll be just tons of information. Um, and we're actually working, almost finished, um, writing the hospice and palliative care course. That one's mm. going to be huge. That is a big one. Yeah. Um, we're collaborating with Monkey's Dogs, uh, Monkey's House Senior Dog Hospice and Sanctuary um, because she's been working with these hospice dogs for the past five or six years, doing everything from a more holistic standpoint, using food therapy with these mm. dogs. And uh, the results have been amazing. And I said, you know, we can't hide this from people. We need, we need to teach other people how to do this. So, yeah. so we're working on that as well. There's, there's always tons of stuff in the works. Right. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is great. Oh, I so enjoyed this conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. No problem. And hopefully we'll have you back on another time to talk about something else. No problem. <laughs> I, got, I got lots in my toolbox. I, know, I, know. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Baru Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to learn more about Dr. Judy Morgan, you can head on over to her website, drjudymorgan.com. And please remember, you guys, this podcast is for informational purposes only, even if and regardless of whether it features the advice of veterinarians and trainers. It is not, nor is it intended to be, a substitute for professional veterinary advice. Let's chat next week.